Let's go ahead and start our time with a word of prayer as we focus on God's word. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you that not only were you holy, but you were good to us. You saw us in our condition and you chose to come down and you chose to take on our flesh, take on our sin on the cross. And you chose to, not only that, but as we're going to be talking about directly from your word, you chose to unite yourself to us. And Lord, we are in awe, we're shocked by this fact that anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus would be united with you. So Lord, we look to you in this hour, we look to you in this time, we pray that you would be with us, please illumine our hearts to your understanding, help us to understand what it means to be in you. We love you, we ask this in Christ's wonderful name, amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about the power of prepositions. If you're anything like me, It's been a minute since you've been in English class, so I literally had to look up what is a preposition. That might not be your current state, but that certainly was my state. Uh, A preposition effectively indicates, it's a word to indicate direction, relation, or location of usually the noun or pronoun to another object in a sentence. So I am right now before you all. That's my spatial location, and this um, preposition helps indicate where I am and all of that. And in order to illustrate this, I want to bring it to a bit of a story. So let's say one day your dream comes true, where you're finally able with three of your friends to make it to the moon. You and three other friends go on a moon landing mission. And you, growing up, uh, space enthusiasts, particularly uh, fixated on the moon, had a a crater in mind. You wanted to go visit this crater one day when you knew that, I I know I'm going to the moon, and I know if we land somewhere close to this crater, I'm going to make my trip over there and just see and stand in awe of this. Well, the day comes, you're able to go to the moon, and you land within distance of being able to see this particular crater. So you and the crew go out, and you go a little bit further than they, and you come to this crater, and it is everything and much more than you ever hoped or expected it to be. You stand at the precipice of it, and you are shocked and in awe at this immaculate full circle that is seemingly untouched by time, given that the moon respectively has no wind or even weather for that matter. But suddenly you're jarred from this trance that you're in by a notification that comes in through the intercom. One of the people on your crew says, attention, all crew members, we were not accurate in the amount of time that we would have in order to make it back. So as of right now, we have seven minutes before launch if we want to catch our window. Everyone back to the ship now. By your calculations, you're a smart person. You made it to the moon. By your calculations, you estimate, it took me about five or 15 minutes rather to walk out this way. If I'm to run my way back, it's going to take about that seven minutes given the low gravity plus the cumbersome suit that I'm wearing. So you run like your life's depended on it because your life's dependent on it. So you run as fast as you possibly can back to this land cruiser and you you go as fast as you can and a little over halfway, you get a notification from your smart suit that says you have about three minutes of oxygen remaining. Your your smart suit is able to tell that you're exerting much more oxygen than previously anticipated. So being, again, the smart person that you are, you reckon my oxygen's gonna run out approximately the time that I hope to arrive at this land cruiser. I I hope hope to arrive at this rocket. So you come up on it and you can see it from the distance. The ignition begins to fire off. So the engines start up. They've opened up the airlock for you. Now, prepositions are very important. Where do you want to be in relation to the rocket? Where do you want to be? According to one source, 
there are nine most common prepositions. With, at, by, towards, for, from, of, on, and in. So let me ask you, in relation to this rocket that's about to blast off back home, either leaving you without oxygen and on the moon, or somewhere in relation to this rocket, would you rather be with the rocket? That might, that might indicate spatial location, but not necessarily where you need to be. Would you rather be at it, by it, towards it, from it, on it, or where do you want to be, brothers and sisters? You want to be in that rocket, don't you? Because that thing's taking you home. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our annual series, Building on Our Heritage, in light of our 60th anniversary. By way of reminder, this study that we've been in, the first about nine um, messages that we've been walking through are talking through just the first 14 verses of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're spending a great deal of time investigating what does it mean that we were welcomed into the family of God. So we've taken quite a bit of time in and through this, and we're going to be looking at our unity in Christ this morning, as Pastor Burke has already made it known. So we're going to rely quite a bit on the text this morning. I'd invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to once again walk through verses 1 through 14 together. I'm I'm going to need to have you have it opened either in a physical copy or on your phone. We're going to be referring back to it. And we're going to kind of inverse this thing where I'm going to have the text up on the PowerPoint and we'll read portions of it together. And then I'm going to be referring back to the text on your lap throughout the remainder of our time together. Now, the thing that indicates our union with Christ by way of verbiage in our text this morning is the, the preposition in him. So when I put it up on the board, every time there is an in him phrase, I've underlined it. And I want, as I'm reading the passage, I want us together to read those underlined portions. So do we, we got that? Got instructions so far? I need participation this morning. Everything underlined, we're going to read that together. So are we, are we ready to go? We'll start off and we'll see how we do with this first one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Beautiful. Great job. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be, this will be important for our time today, holy and blameless, more prepositions, before him, in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons, more prepositions, through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, I love this, lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is, the summoning up of all things in Christ. Things, you're waning on me a little bit. I need you here. Okay. Things in the heavens and things on earth in him. There it is. We're back. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus would be to the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, that is the good news, and then after having seized it, having also believed, you were sealed in him, our last one for this morning, with the pledge of the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. If you were counting from the word of God this morning, there were 10 possible in him phrases indicating our union with Christ. Each have their own implication, but we'll boil them down into three benefits of our unity in Jesus. So there are a lot of implications, a lot of in him phrases indicating our unity in Christ. So though we have three points and we'll boil them down to three points, we really have 10 points for you this morning. So buckle up as we launch off on our own little space mission into the unity of Christ. But first, what is unity in Christ. What does it mean that those in him are united with him? While this passage clearly contains the implications of our unity in Christ, there's little by way of definition. The closest to uh, any human relationship that we have by way of unity would be what human relationship? Probably marriage. Marriage, the union and the bond that we enjoy with one another, uh, husband and wife. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, uh, then when he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, he says, then the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's certainly unity in that God has made two become one flesh. But even this illustration of marriage falls woefully short of the real thing because I am still me and my my wife is still she. We are still two separate entities. Scripture seems to paint even a more powerful picture of the unity we have with Jesus. A passage that helps explain and define this unity well outside of our text this morning is Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 that says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I've been crucified, and there's more uh, preposition there, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a little bit different than marriage, isn't it? In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So looking back to our marriage illustration, while a guy that I like to call single Stefan certainly died on June 9th of 2012, my marriage still falls short of describing the union that we enjoy, those who are in Christ Jesus. Spiritually speaking, each one of us who have given ourselves over to the lordship of Jesus died with him on the cross. What are the connotations of this reality if you have died with Jesus? Jesus rose from the dead three days later. Therefore, you and I who are in Christ rose from the grave as well. For a more extended commentary on this point, you can read Romans chapter 6 that speaks of this resurrection when we're in him. But if you look at the verse in Galatians up on the board here, Christians currently exist in a curious state of spiritual death and life. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But what does he go on to say? The life I now live. <laughs> so he's like, I don't live. But the life I do live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's this union that is unlike any other um, relationship that we enjoy from a horizontal or a vertical horizontal perspective that is totally different with the union we share in Jesus. So what makes this union increasingly profound is when we consider how the Father views the Son. 
Think back on a time in Jesus' earthly ministry where the father literally declared how he views his son. During times like his baptism and transfiguration, God the father makes his love and approval of the son clear by stating things like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Beloved, well pleased. In commenting on this passage, Puritan Richard Sibbs says the following in his book, The Bruised Reed. What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rests on Christ as well pleased in him, we may gather that he is well pleased with us if we be in Christ For his love rests in a whole on Christ, not in Christ mystical as well as Christ natural, speaking of the dual nature of Jesus, because he loves him and us with one love. Again, we are in Christ, this union we share. But us, therefore, embrace Christ and in him, God's love, and build our faith safely on such a savior that is furnished with so high a commission. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So to put the matter plainly, our union with Christ is what allows each of the indicative, each of the indicative statuses that we've been discussing up to this point in Ephesians. We can only be adopted by God because we are in him, saved, redeemed. All of these things are only possible because of the reality of the union that we share with Jesus. We have effectively been subsumed into Christ's very person, allowing us to partake of every of the benefits that he himself enjoys. I want us to stop there and think about that for a moment. Any other preposition could have been used to describe how we relate to Christ. And yet the most impactful, the most intimate is reserved for those who embrace the cross So looking at some of these implications, the first benefit of our union is that our eternal salvation in Jesus is secured. Our first of the three in him passages are covered under this umbrella. Looking down at your text, we see that we are given to a new identity. We are given, rather, a new identity in him. We're given a new identity in him. If you're looking at the text, this is in the very first verse, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. First, we see that we're given a new title. We are called saints. And this is, uh, as Aaron has already discussed back in January, an indication of status as well as affiliation. We are no longer dead in our transgressions and sins as Ephesians 2 is going to talk about, but we are saints made alive in him. It also includes affiliation. It's a plural word. We are saints together collectively in Christ. So we see that affiliation in the status. Next, we see our first instance of what we like to call prepositional confusion here. The Greek is quite clear, and it's stated properly here, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. One might expect a different preposition right here. Faithful to Christ Jesus would be who the letter is towards, or faithful of Christ Jesus. But this is an identity passage and a part of our unity that we enjoy with Christ. So what are the spiritual implications of our new identity in Jesus? A lot of these 
identity passages, these union passages that we're going to be discussing are going to be matters that we've already talked about, but they have a, a unique flavor, a unique light to them when we look at them through the lens of our union that we enjoy with Jesus. So some of these might seem like a repeat, but let's take a look at them and the implications borne out from our unity that we enjoy. This first implication of our new identity is an obvious one. Each one of us creatures were created by our Creator with a need for a rested identity. Let me say that again. Each one of us creatures were created by our Creator with a need for a rested identity. Some place this need for an identity in uh, all sorts of things, political agreement, philosophical adherence, moral alignment, some sort of group affiliation. Others may place identity in ethnicity or family origins. Identity can be found in what you like, what you do for work, for enjoyment, or otherwise. It can be attached to status. Identity can be attached to accomplishments. The options are almost endless. The idea is we, as people who are given the need to place our identity somewhere, need to place our identity somewhere. It's a compulsion that's ingrained within us. When identity is lost, the results can be catastrophic. Does anyone know who Christopher Reeves is? Anyone know Christopher Reeves? What was the main role Christopher Reeves played in his acting career? Superman. And that's how, how he was known to be. He was known as Superman, and he did it super well. He's, a, he's an incredible actor. I grew up watching uh, the original Superman, right? I grew up watching Christopher Reeves, wonderful actor. He's just built to be Superman. But what happened to Christopher Reeves shortly after playing that role? He was thrown from a horse and became a quadriplegic. And those, if you read his writings and if you read his interviews there afterwards, you can tell that this was a man stripped of his identity, who had placed semblances of his identity in his acting abilities, in his good looks, in his capabilities of his own volition, so forth. And once that identity was stripped away, he became a crumbling of man. When identity is lost, it can be catastrophic. What's different about our identity in Christ? those who are in him. Number one, it's where our identity as creatures was intended to rest. And number two, nothing can make it untrue. So number one, what's different about those who have an identity in Jesus is this is where our identity was meant to find its full and final satisfaction within. We were meant to be saints, Christians in Christ. And what's even better is that can't be stripped away. There's no event that can happen in our life that will undo this. If you look at any other place we can place our identity, that can be taken away, but not when we are in Christ. Other implications of our newfound identity in Jesus, another one is quite simple. The search is over. <laughs> we, we need to look no further when we've found our identity in Jesus. My wife and I served quite a bit in college ministry, and in that particular era of life, a lot of times relationships are formed, relationships are um, kind of confused, and relationships can fall apart. And so a lot of what the, the college sponsors do, a lot of what we do is help people navigate uh, relationships in this age, in this era. And ever so often, my wife and I will kind of come back from one of these instances of volatile relational strain or so forth, and we'll just be like, 
Lord, thank you that I'm married. <laughs> no offense to those of you who are in that, that phase right now, that scrambly phase, but there's something nice about just being rested, being, I've found it, I've, I'm in that. That's the way it is for Christians who have a rested identity in him. No, the search is over. No more trying to build one's identity or find it elsewhere. We have found it in Jesus. When we're in Christ, we don't need to attach our identity to anything else. We're precisely where we were created to be. And as an extension of this new identity, we're spiritually blessed in him. Our passage goes on to outline this um, portion. Verse 2 says, God has blessed us. If you're looking at it, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Pastor Byers, just like Aaron, expounded on this aspect of it back in January. When Christ comes, unimaginable with Christ rather, comes unimaginable blessing that we know now in part, but we'll come to realize in full once we're finally another wonderful preposition with him. But our unity in Christ adds another element to this discussion of the spiritual blessings we enjoy, and it might be a less popular implication than the previous one we just talked about. What do you and I deserve in a single word for anyone who is outside of Christ? When we're outside of Christ, what do you and I deserve in a single word? Hell, we deserve eternal separation. The minute we forsake a holy and righteous God and go against what he has ordained, we deserve eternal separation and hell from him. And yet, what has Jesus himself done for us? He has come and he has taken flesh just like what we prayed to start our time. He has taken on flesh and he has borne our suffering. He has borne our, the wrath that was due us, taken that upon himself. The blessings that were all due him are now trans, transmitted onto us. I can't remember who said this, but, but what should this elicit in our hearts regardless of our circumstance? The fact that if you are in Christ, God has not only taken away the wrath that was due you, but given us spiritual blessings, given us salvation. What should that elicit in a single word in our hearts? Praise, thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this wonderful, marvelous blessing. I can't remember who said it, but it's been noted that one of the slimiest creatures to walk the earth is the brat. I can't remember who said it, but they said this, one of the slimiest creatures to walk the earth is the brat. Who is the brat? He's the one who's given a blessing, given a gift, given something, and in return gives contempt, scorn, a lack of gratitude or thanksgiving. What is bound up in the heart of the slimy brat? Entitlement. So any gift you could possibly give, any blessing you could bestow on the brat will be taken either as, I already deserve this, or if it's withheld from him, I do deserve this. So the brat responds as a slimy brat would respond. But that's not how the Christian ought to be. On the contrary, what does the word of God say? First Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. My favorite illustration of this comes by way of Betsy Ten Boom, and the last name might sound familiar to you. Uh, Ten Boom, Betsy Ten Boom is the sister of Corey Ten Boom, who wrote, at least her most famous work was The Hiding Place, where she recounts her time in a concentration camp during World War II. She and her sister was in a, were in a particular concentration camp, and in this uh, scenario where this passage comes up, they come into a new barracks, and the barracks they're moved into 
are absolutely riddled with fleas. It's flea-ridden. And Corey and Betsy open up the Word of God and begin reading God's Word, and they're smacking fleas off of themselves as they're absolutely jumping and hopping all over them. And Betsy comes to this passage, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And she says, Corey, would you mind giving thanks right now? And Corey's like, Betsy, what are you talking about? She's like, it says, in everything, give thanks. Could you take a moment and give thanks? And reluctantly, Corey does give thanks. Lord, thank you that we have our lives. Thank you that you've uh, given us these gals to minister and talk to and so forth. And then she closes up her prayer. And Betsy says, you forgot something. Uh, You forgot to thank God for the fleas. And Corey's like, come on, Betsy, thank God for the fleas. And she's like, it says, in everything, give thanks. So once again, reluctantly, Corey says, and Lord, thank you for the fleas, amen. But what do they discover later? They discover later that they were able to have a ministry of the word in that particular barracks because the Nazi soldiers would not do their usual rounds through that barracks because it was flea-ridden. So they were able to have and, and read God's word together and even bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus because of the fleas. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our spiritual blessing in Christ doesn't mean we're to fake happiness in the midst of sorrow. It's sim- simply a standing disposition, a disposition. I am blessed in Christ. It's a heart that says he could give me nothing else on this side, on this side of eternity, and he's already given me the complete opposite of what I deserve. That is the standing disposition of the Christian. I have the opposite right now of what I deserve in Christ. In other words, don't be a slimy brat. Be blessed. And part of that blessing is the fact that we are holy and blameless in him. This one might seem a little bit disjointed. Our passage mentions, rather, that we are chosen in him, if you're looking down at verse 4, chosen in him. But the purpose clause attached to this election, being chosen in him, is that we would be holy and blameless before him. So this is a present reality, a capability, as well as an unfolding expectation. The, the holy and blameless, it's a reality. When we were crucified with Christ, we were made to be holy and blameless. It is our standing before God. So we who are in Christ are holy and blameless. But it also is a capacity. Before, we had no capacity to even ascribe or aspire towards holiness and blamelessness. But when God's Spirit sealed us, as the end of the passage says, we were given the capacity to pursue holiness and blamelessness. But it is also in expectation. We are to be holy and blameless. So we are holy and blameless. We are able to be holy and blameless, and we are to be holy and blameless. So already in the first few verses, we have identity, disposition, and now we have our purpose. I don't think I need to convince us why purpose is essential. Much like identity, without a purpose, despair tends to move in and take up residence where there was vacancy. The examples of this are endless. Look at anyone who sees no purpose in their life, and you will likely see the presence of despair. And yet, for those who are in Christ, our purpose is given to us, and it's something we would not have otherwise chosen. Be holy and blameless. I wouldn't have chosen that. Are we beginning to see the sheer power of union with Christ? 
brothers and sisters, with this note, we are called to be that which we are, holy and blameless. What area of our lives is this inherited purpose to affect? What area of our lives, brothers and sisters? All aspects. Be holy and blameless in your relationships, how we relate one to another. Be holy and blameless in your parenting. Holy and blameless in your work by way of integrity, by way of relations with the workforce. Holy and blameless in your leisure. Holy and blameless in your conduct, in your conduct public, in your conduct private. Holy and blameless in your communication, in everything. Holy and blameless. To sum up, our purpose is to be like the one whom we are in. It also talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Romans 8.29, core passages that talk about who we are to be, our purpose in Christ Jesus. And to reiterate the broader point of this, these first three union passages, this is part of the security we enjoy when we're in Christ. None of us needs to earn our identity. We don't need to earn our disposition. We don't need to earn our purpose. It was won for us by Jesus. And this leads us into the second wonderful benefit of our unity that we enjoy in Christ. We're part of the family of God. This comes with a whopping six implications. It's no surprise given that this is a theme that's going to be running throughout the course of the book of Ephesians. When the college students and I studied this back in 2020, we labeled this whole study family manual. The family manual. The first part talks about this is what it is to be in God's family. And then the second half of the manual is this is what it looks like to to function as a member of God's family. So family is a huge part running throughout the course of Ephesians. The first three implications of our union in Christ relating to our new family have been handled rather extensively so far in our study through Ephesians. So we won't spend as much time on it. We'll just look at the implications of it as it bears to our union in Christ. We are adopted in him. This is our fourth in him statement and spans verses five through six. The larger context describes the the mechanics of our adoption. So if you're looking at the passage with me, there's a running start into verse 5 that talks about its love that initiated the process of this adoption. Then Jesus served as the agent as well as the payment of our adoption. God's kindness informed his will leading to our adoption. His grace was put on display, and verse 6 brings it back and ties it together with our union in and with Christ. So the implications of our spiritual adoption when we consider our union with Christ are pretty simple. We are to no longer function as spiritual orphans if we are adopted in him. The orphan is going to worry about security matters. Am I going to be secure without parents, without a family? Am I going to be cared for? Am I going to be loved? Who's going to know me and who's going to think about me and who's going to be on my mind's eye? But imagine an orphan who is adopted by a king. So you have an orphan who is without parents, without family, but adopted by a king. But this orphan still worries about what he'll eat, who will care for him, where he'll sleep, how he's going to get by. Brothers and sisters, I would argue it's far more ridiculous when you and I worry about even lesser matters than these base needs. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, calling us men and women of little faith when we're anxious about our life. We can trust our heavenly Father. He'll care for us and keep us eternally secure. And as we saw from last week when Pastor Virus said we are redeemed in him, This speaks to our previous state. Not only were we without a legitimate family, we were enslaved to sin and death. 
as we mentioned more on our enslavement to sin and death in chapter two, but Christ brought us and bought us from our former state. The implications of our redemption also relate to the next matter of union, our forgiveness, but we can struggle with our redemption and we can struggle with our forgiveness on a daily basis. Let me ask you, if Jesus paid for our redemption, what more needs to be paid towards our redemption? If Jesus paid for our redemption, what more needs to be paid towards our redemption? What? Nothing. Nothing. Is that how you and I live? Though everything has been covered, how often do we try to earn our redemption? There's great freedom in relieving ourselves the burden of purchasing our own redemption, were that even a possibility, because what will really mess up our purpose, to be holy and blameless, remember? What's going to really mess up our purpose is if we go to God with that and say, here's my payment for my redemption. What's God going to say? I already paid for that. I already paid for your redemption. Look at the blood of the, my son who I paid for for that. Or worse, if we recognize how unholy and blameworthy we are apart from our union with Christ and say, I can't be redeemed because I have nothing to give. What's he gonna say, brothers and sisters? There's nothing you can give. What ought we say? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If you're in here and you have not yet been in Christ, if you have not yet given yourself to him, if you have not, as our passage said towards the end, believed in this gospel, then you are outside of him. You are still the one running to this shuttle about to launch off, losing oxygen, becoming separated from any hope or semblance of salvation. Jesus says, with the nothing in your hands, go to him and find everything. Take your nothing. Receive your everything. And this leads us to the fact that we are forgiven in him. Not only has payment been given for our redemption, forgiveness has been granted for our sins. This may seem like a distinction without a difference from our last point, but the implications are not quite the same from either. How we view this, how we view our forgiveness in him, is, how, is going to affect how we view God himself as a tender and forgiving father or as an oppressive overlord. Pastor Josh Greiner put this really well in an illustration that he gave a number of years ago in a, in a message. He talked about the, the relationship that a son might enjoy with a father, but when this son messes up and perceives his father to be overbearing and harsh, this is what he will likely say, I messed up, hope dad doesn't find out. What's the view of that son towards his father? I'm going to receive wrath, judgments. He's going to be harsh towards me. I messed up, hope dad doesn't find out. What about the son who has a loving relationship with the father, understands forgiveness is received from him? He says, I messed up, better go tell dad. I messed up, better go tell dad. Someone who understands their forgiveness in Christ won't hide because the very one ready to, ready to dole out forgiveness is the very one we've sinned against. Go to him, don't hide run to him. Have, don't have a, a perverted understanding of who God is. See, a false understanding of our union with Christ as it relates to our forgiveness is going to necessarily distance us from God. It's going to cause us to hide. Don't hide. Go to him. Someone who understands their forgiveness in Christ won't wallow endlessly in guilt and shame. 
One who understands their forgiveness in Christ won't have an inordinate fixation on their sin either. They will have a healthy introspection. They will understand that I need to bring my sin to him. They won't be totally blind to their sin, but they also won't have an obsession on their sin. They'll have an obsession with the one who forgave them. Our adoption puts us in a new family. Our redemption cuts ties with our former life and our forgiveness erases all past, present, and future sin. God sees it all the same. And this leads us to our seventh implication of union with Christ. We are illumined in him. Looking down at our passage, we see this at the end of verse eight, all all the way running through nine. It says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. So here we see the trifecta of wisdom, insight, and knowledge are gifted to those who are in him which is to say our state before Christ joined us to himself was much the opposite, the opposite of wisdom, opposite of insight, opposite of knowledge, opposite of illuminated. It wasn't until Christ's light flooded our pitch black world that we now see properly, though through a glass dimly. What are the implications of this for us today? Time would fail to mention each, but one of the illuminating works of Christ in us is his revelation of spiritually discerned matters through his word. First Corinthians 2 talks about this more extensively, kind of culminating in the idea that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We need God's spirit living in us in order to see and perceive spiritual things. But the simple fact of us being illumined in him is this. We are able to, those in Christ, to understand his word and his will. Before you brush that off as insignificant, understand and recognize what could have been. Number one, God could have chosen to never make himself known to us. He could have created us, put us in the garden, had that close in him relationship that we enjoyed. And once we messed up in Genesis chapter three, he could have said, go your way. You have chosen, go. And we never would have known him. Number two, God could have chosen to reveal himself to us, but it would be incomprehensible. We just sang about how holy and awesome and incomprehensible our God is, and yet he chose to give us. He chose to speak to us, to reveal himself to us, his will, his plan, and so much more. And because you are in Christ, we're able to know these mysteries. So don't fail to look at the light. If you are in him, don't fail to look at the light. Don't return to darkness thinking you can stumble upon the correct path. Look to God's word and trust that he has made himself known to those who are in him, which leads us to the fact that we are full in him. Verse 10 makes it clear. All things find their unity and fullness in Jesus. This is a matter that Jesus hits and continually points to in his earthly ministry. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone's hungry, let him partake of me, the bread of life. If anyone desires rest, let him find it in me. If anyone wants to know the way, hear the truth, live the life, it's found in me alone. Every ounce, I hope you believe this, Every ounce of our spiritual thirst and hunger finds its full and final satisfaction in whom, brothers and sisters? In Jesus. The implication here is plain. Go to him and remain in him. 
That's the union in Christ implication that we have for the fullness we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Go to him and remain in him. He even puts it in John 15, abide in him. Make your home in him. Seek satisfaction nowhere else. And if this wasn't enough, we are also inheritors in him. It's almost like we're getting pummeled. We might be exhausted at this point. Our union with Christ gives us our identity, disposition, purpose, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, illumination, and fullness. Now, we hear we're to receive an inheritance in him. It's like Thanksgiving where mom just keeps bringing out course after course after course. And once you don't think you can have another morsel, what happens? She brings out dessert. It's like, I, I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't handle it anymore. This is it. But this all speaks to the God that we serve. None of this is earned of our own volition. Just like an inheritance is not given, it's not, it's given rather, it's not gained. And the main implication for us regarding our inheritance in Christ is one that would shock us. We don't receive land, not riches, not property, not heirlooms. What do we receive? Our inheritance is God himself and all with him, all things. We get God and he gets us as his inheritance. We couldn't ask for anything more. In the family of God, we want for nothing because he is all we were created to want and it can't be taken away. Our position is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And as if to emphasize the matter, our final union with Christ implication is bookended by two in him phrases. I'll put it up on the board here. It says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, this gospel, this good news, that hope is found in Jesus, that forgiveness, redemption, inheritance, adoption, all of this is found in Jesus. Once you have, once you have believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as this pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's us. We are, he is our inheritance and we are his. We see that also in Revelation 22, to the praise of his glory. In two weeks, Pastor Byers is gonna spell out the implications of our indwelling. That's the theological reality that those who are in Christ have God's Holy Spirit resident within them, another wonderful preposition, I hope we can agree. Though the implications will be detailed then, one point that God's word is seeking to make in this passage is our permanency when we are in him. Because what does it mean for something to be sealed within the context of what Paul would be writing about here? That means when when a letter or an edict was written, it would have been put in some semblance of an envelope or it would have been folded up, a dab of wax would have been put on it and it would have been sealed with a signet ring. That signet ring would have contained a particular marking. Who is able to open that letter, that edict? Who's able to open it? The one bearing the signet ring. Do you have the signet ring of salvation? Yes or no? Does anyone you know have the signet ring of salvation? No. Does Satan or anyone he knows have that ring? And if God was the one to seal it and he bears the ring, does he have any intention on breaking it? This, along with other passages, would say certainly not. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, in Christ, our union with him is sealed, and our God, who never breaks his promises, has pledged our inheritance. Isn't it great to be in him? 
I typically like to have just one main takeaway in a sermon, something that we can all collectively consider together uh, out of this passage. This has been kind of like a shotgun blast. We'll see what sticks with these 10 points. So given the implication of our union with Christ and the broad diversity that this entails, it was almost impossible. So instead, we have 10 or more takeaways. Perhaps you needed to be reminded of your new identity in Christ, lest you try to attach it to any other matter. Maybe you needed a reminder of your spiritual blessing, namely that our standing disposition should be one of unshakable thanksgiving, lest we fall back into the slimy brat. Each one of us needed a reminder of our own purpose, growing in our love and likeness to Christ as we strive to be holy and blameless by His power for His glory. Regarding our new family, perhaps you needed God's word to point out your adoption lest you fall back into spiritual orphancy, your redemption lest you try to buy back what has already been purchased, your forgiveness lest you neglect he who has forgiven you, your illumination lest you seek to stumble along your own way, your fullness lest you seek spiritual satisfaction anywhere outside of Christ, or your inheritance lest you place ultimate value on anything other than Jesus. And lastly, you may have needed the simple security that those who are in Christ remain in Christ because the seal of the Holy Spirit is one that cannot be broken. Brothers and sisters, Are we thankful for the preposition God chose to place in our relation to Jesus? Yes or no? Most assuredly. We aren't towards him. We aren't by him. We aren't near him. But we are, in fact, in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that those who have given themselves over to Jesus, who have been crucified on that very cross, are now in him. And all of these union with Christ implications bear out in our lives. They are a present reality. Help us to understand and seize these. Help us to live with the recognition of this unity that we enjoy in Christ. Father, please be with us through this. Lord, help us to love you more. Help us to pursue you more. We do love you and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.